For 14 years, potential singing stars have auditioned on the X Factor. don't know if you've noticed that it's back on your TV screens uh, on the run-up to Christmas. But unfortunately, not all of them are as good at singing as others. But, but it really makes me wonder, why can they not see that? Why can they not see how awful they are? Or even more importantly, how can their family and friends not see that and tell them before they make a fool of themselves on TV? Now maybe their family and friends don't want to hurt their feelings or dash their dreams, but is it really kindness to hide that truth from people and leave them to face a devastating judgment later on? Would it not be better for them to, to help them to face an uncomfortable truth now before things get too serious? After all, isn't that why teachers correct their students' wrong answers? Or why driving instructors, remember learning how to drive? How they pointed out all of your mistakes so that you could learn to drive properly? Or why the doctor tells us about our high blood pressure or high cholesterol, even although it might be embarrassing or uncomfortable to hear. None of us like to be told these things, but these people do it because we need to face up to an accurate judgment of ourselves now so that we'll be prepared for an ultimate judgment to come. So this passage this morning is kind of uncomfortable reading. It shows a real unpleasant truth about human beings. But God wants us to accept this judgment now so that we can be prepared for the ultimate judgment to come. So that we won't be embarrassed on that day of judgment. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 5, following on from where we left off last week, if you're with us, as we're reading down through the the Adam's line of all of his sons and, and grandsons and all of those people. And we're going to break in at verse 28, and then we're going to read down through chapter 6, down to verse 8. So Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem and Ham and Japheth. When men began to increase in number on the earth and and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the heart, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved 
that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, we thought about a guy called Lamech. He was a descendant of Cain. And he was the guy who boasted to his two wives that he killed a young man out of complete, just pure revenge and retaliation. But the Lamech in this passage that we read this morning, he was a descendant of Seth, a different son of Adam. And he was a different kind of person. So when his son was born, he named him Noah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort or rest. And he said this, because he will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. This was Lamech's optimistic dream for his son. At that stage, life was hard. Producing food in this fallen world was exhausting. And Lamech desperately hoped that Noah would bring comfort and rest from that ongoing labour and struggle and difficulty. And I think many of us could probably appreciate what Lamech was, was on about here. Because many of us are still hoping for that today, aren't we? We long to be able just to relax, or be a little bit more content, or to be safe, or comfortable, or healthy, and happy. But the problem is the world is not like that. It's not a place of rest and comfort. When God looked in the world, he did not see a world that was at rest or that was comfortable. Maybe I remember way back in Genesis chapter 1, when we looked at it, at the end of creation week, it says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God looked to the world that he had created and he said it was very good. Because it reflected his wisdom and his power, his majesty, his splendor, his character, his love. It was a perfect world, a wonderful world. But now as God looked on the world, he saw something completely different. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. When God looked at this world, the world that he created, now he saw a world filled with brutality and violence and evil and selfishness and greed. A world where men and women had just rejected God's leadership in their lives and they were just off doing whatever they wanted. And as we've gone through Genesis, we've seen that with Adam and Eve. Or with Cain who killed his brother. Or with that guy Lamech who'd married two wives and then killed a man. And there's another insight into that. I think that's what we're supposed to understand from this. In verse 2 of our passage. 
It says, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Now this is one of those verses that just make you scratch your head until you just lose the plot completely because it's one of those verses in the Bible that is notoriously difficult to understand and has been endlessly debated for years between different Bible scholars. So we're not going to get bogged down with it. We're not just going to focus on this one verse and get stuck with it. But I do want to kind of briefly give a few suggestions about what it might mean. And you can think about it. Please don't fall out about it. But you can come back to me and and ask if you want to know more about it. The traditional view of this verse is that these sons of God were angels. Fallen angels. Who married women, human women, And the resulting offspring were the Nephilim, who were giants in the world. Now that's the traditional view that's been held by many people. There are some problems with this view, comparing it with the rest of the Bible. For example, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, angels don't marry. Then there are also, angels are not physical beings like us. Jesus talked about that on his resurrection appearances in Luke chapter 24. Also, the Nephilim, the resulting offspring of this, these marriages, were not human-angel kind of hybrids or a new species. They were just men. They were just human beings. And also, the focus of this passage is about the wickedness of human beings not the wickedness of angels who have rejected their place in the world and fallen. So a second view, if you kind of reject that view, is that the sons of God were descendants of Seth, who married ungodly women from the line of Cain. So it's a kind of mixing of the line of God's people and the people who had rejected God. And that their children were called Nephilim because Nephilim possibly could be understood as being the fallen ones. People who'd fallen away from God. There's another problem with this, this view. You can understand why this is difficult. Is that the Nephilim are actually mentioned as being on earth after the flood. Whereas as we're going to go down through it, after the flood, everybody on the earth was a descendant of Seth. So the Nephilim couldn't be the result of Seth and Cain's lines being mixed in that case. So there's a a third view. This is the last one I'm going to mention, okay? Uh, With possibly fewer problems. And that is, the sons of God were simply godly men. People who lived in relationship with God. Who were drawn away from God by following attractive, ungodly women who were not living for God. And that their children were called Nephilim because they fell away from God's favour. Maybe a simpler view, but maybe it doesn't really quite understand why these Nephilim are described as heroes of old or men of renown. What made them special in this world or what made them set out from different? Okay, that's enough of that. Whatever you think about that, I think there's a simple conclusion that we're supposed to come up to up, up with. And that is that mankind has become incredibly corrupt. They've gone from Adam and Eve living in perfect 
communion and relationship with God in the Garden of Eden, expressing God's character and living out his plan and purpose for their lives. And they have descended further and further and further and gone further and further away from God's plan. And the world's a mess. And God says here that the problem in the world The reason for this descent into this wickedness, this corruption, is not because of a lack of laws. It's not because there wasn't enough courts or police or any of those things. Or it wasn't because of a lack of discipline or education or civilization. He says the problem is much deeper than that. This is one of the most challenging verses when you think of it in this passage, it says that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Here were human beings, supposed to be the pinnacle of God's creation, people who reflected God, who, who resembled God, who honoured God, who pointed people to God. But every desire in their heart, every thought in their mind, every want that they expressed, every attitude that they cultivated was polluted by that sinful nature. It was polluted by a rebellious attitude towards God. Because God had created human beings to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your mind. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. Then he went on to say, and also to love your neighbour as yourself. That is what human beings are supposed to be doing. Loving God with everything they are and loving other people as much as they love themselves. But instead human beings had turned their back on God. They'd rebelled against his rule. They'd rejected his commands. They'd redesigned their lives according to what they wanted And as a result, they were using and abusing other people for their own selfish desires. And this is still God's diagnosis of what is wrong with the world. The heart of the problem in this world is not the political systems, it's not the government institutions, it's not lack of education or lack of knowledge or any of those things. The the heart of the problem of this world is the problem of our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And I think if we're going to be honest and we're going to see the world today through God's eyes, we are going to see that things haven't changed that much. This is what it's like today in our world. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to his friend Timothy, he said that in these last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure 
rather than lovers of God. And for me, I think Paul is describing, as if Paul's here today and he's describing our society. And he's describing our world. And he's just been watching the news that I've been watching. This is what God saw when he looked in the world. But did you notice how it impacted him? Did you notice how he responded to it? Look at verse 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. You ever had people accuse God of being kind of distant and indifferent to all of the struggles and suffering in the world? As if he's like an old guy sitting up in a cloud somewhere completely unconcerned with the fact that this world's an absolute mess. But this verse says that when God looked to the world, he was deeply distressed. The words here actually are used to express the most intense of human emotions. They can be described as a, a mixture of rage and bitter anguish. In the Bible, these words are used to describe how Dinah's brothers felt when she was raped. Or how Jonathan felt when he heard about his dad, King Saul, about his treatment of, of David, his plan to kill David. Or how David felt when he heard the news that his son Absalom had died. Or how a wife feels when her husband deserts her. That's how God feels about the corruption in this world. He is filled with rage at the wickedness in this world. The crimes committed, the selfishness expressed, because it goes against his holy nature. And he's filled with bitter anguish at the waste of human potential. At the pain that's being endured, at the loss that's been suffered, at the tragedy of his image bearers destroying themselves and each other. And God feels that so deeply because he loves us so deeply. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all. He is made. When parents see their kids make really bad choices that are destroying their lives, their hearts break because they love their kids and they desperately want them to have the best life possible. But the Bible says that God is love. So how much more Will our heavenly Father's heart break when he sees the mess of human beings? And that's what Jesus expressed when he was walking on this earth. For example, one day he was approaching Jerusalem and it says he just wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept because he knew the consequences of their sinful rejection of him. And it deeply distressed them because he loved them. And of course that love 
was so deep that he was willing to go to the cross for them. So what about us? Is this how we feel when we see our fallen world? Are we deeply distressed by the wickedness and the suffering in it? Or do we just close our eyes to that? Do we just harden our heart because it's so painful? Do we just turn away, change the channel, stick our head in the sand? Just to try and get away from it all? If we are God's people, we're called to be imitators of God. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. I believe that God today wants us to care about this world as he cares about it. So God saw and was deeply distressed over the wickedness in this world. So he determined to respond to it. Verse 7. I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. It's a horrifying event. God was going to send a worldwide flood that was going to wipe out all of humanity and all land-dwelling animals. This was God's righteous judgment on people's sin and rebellion against them. So God was doing the right thing here. But it was more than just a judgment. It was also a warning. Something that we can learn from today. A warning of an even more serious judgment to come. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus was referring to the fact that he's coming again. His second coming. And he's coming on that time, not as a humble, gentle, little, cute, little baby boy. But he's coming in power and glory. Not as a suffering servant dying for, other, for others. But as the sovereign Lord to whom every knee must bow. Not to heal and to preach a good news of grace but to bring the fullness of salvation for those who have trusted in Jesus, but also the fullness of God's judgment on all those who have not accepted the gospel. And no one, apart from God, knows when that day of judgment will come. But that's the ultimate day of judgment that we need to be ready for. Because the consequences of being unprepared on that day frankly, are just terrifying. In John's vision in Revelation chapter 20, he says this, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life because they hadn't trusted in Jesus, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's the ultimate judgment to come. And that's a warning. The flood is a warning of that judgment that's coming. But this passage is not only a warning of judgment, it's also a reminder of God's grace. God was so grieved over the sin of mankind, but he didn't act in immediate judgment. 
He didn't just come in and say, okay, I'm going to wipe them out and do it right away. Did you notice this in verse 3? God says, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, his days will be 120 years. Then first of all, there's some debate about this verse as well. Okay, it's not as complicated as the last one. But some people think that this means that from then on, nobody would live beyond 120 years old. This was going to be the lifespan of human beings. As we saw last week, this could partly explain the, compl- the drastic drop-off of the number of, of years of people living after the flood. So, up to, up to the flood, up to Noah, we're up to the 900s, and then suddenly we're way down to the 200s. Also, maybe matches with the fact that the maximum lifespans today are still around 120 mark. But it's not completely accurate. As even after the flood, people lived for more than 120 years. In fact, every generation after Noah, right to Jacob, lived for more than 120 years. And even Aaron, after that, lived to 123 years old. So probably it's better to understand that this 120 years is not referring to people's lifespan, but instead is referring to the amount of time that would lapse until the flood would come. It's like a countdown to the coming judgment. And 120 years from that point on, then the flood will come. But that brings a question, doesn't it? Why would God wait for another 120 years? According to the genealogies, the the record of people's lifespans in Genesis chapter 5, there had already been over 1,500 years of sin and rebellion and evil. And as we've seen, it really deeply impacted God's heart. So why would he wait any longer? Well, one reason is he wanted to give time to Noah to build an ark. This is what Peter writes. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. He gave Noah time to build the ark. We're going to think about Noah and, and all of that next week. But this passage tells us that in a world where mankind had just gone away from God, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Noah resisted the pressure of his peers. He refused to follow the crowd. And he put his faith in God. And as a result, he was saved by God's grace. And God waited to give Noah time to complete the work of building this ark so that him and his family could be saved. This is God's grace. God's mercy. But Peter suggests another reason for this delay. He's in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says this. God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah a preacher of righteousness. Noah was not only a boat builder, he was also a preacher of righteousness. Now the Bible doesn't tell us the content of what he preached, or his method, or the audience to whom he preached. But it seems like God was giving time for Noah to be able to warn the world of that coming flood. 
And we can be sure that's why God is delaying his judgment today. This is why Christ hasn't come back yet to judge the world. Why it's been nearly 2,000 years since he made that promise of his coming again. The Apostle Peter again wrote in his, in that his day, people were ridiculing the promise of Jesus coming. They were saying, where is this coming that Jesus promised? Ever since the fathers, our fathers died, everything has going on, been going on since the beginning of creation. Jesus isn't coming back. There's no sign of that. Sure, that promise is just a whole load of rubbish. But Peter, in this letter, pointed them back to the flood and reminded them that God judged the world before and he would do it again sometime. But for now, he is delaying this judgment because God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because he's given time for us to come to that point of repentance and faith in him so that we can be saved. So the flood declares both the wickedness of man and the certainty of God's judgment. It warns us to be ready for it. First of all, to be accepting of, of the provision of salvation. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. So today, if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, you can do it today and you can cross over from death to life. You can no longer be condemned. And you can look with confidence to that judgment day. Know that you will be standing before God dressed in the righteousness of Jesus because you've trusted in Him. But if we have accepted God's salvation, then this delay in Jesus coming again is giving us time to warn everyone that we can. God doesn't want anybody to be lost. And he wants us to get busy telling people about it. So Paul wrote to Timothy that in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's our job. To get ourselves ready and to do everything that we can to get other people ready. Of course, nobody likes to be told that they're not ready. Nobody likes to have their faults or their feelings highlighted. Nobody likes to be told that they're not good enough in of themselves. But it's essential that we understand how God sees our sin, how he is deeply distressed about it, and that one day he will judge it righteously. So let's use the time we have until he comes back again to get prepared by accepting his way of salvation 
and by sharing the gospel with as many people as possible.